Welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Center for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Irina Schneider, and I'm your host. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Ilya Murtazashvili, who is an associate professor in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. His research centers on property rights institutions, American political development, public administration in weekly institutionalized contexts, and fragile states. His latest paper is a joint project with Jennifer Murtazashvili on the causes of state predation, with particular emphasis on Afghanistan as a case study. Ilya, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Irina. It's great to be here. Uh, I really enjoyed the seminar we had yesterday. The the group you got here at, at at King's College is is amazing. It's a it's a wonderful political economy group, and and I've already got a, a, a ton of insights for the for the paper that we're working on, and I look forward to uh, re- integrating those comments uh, in, in the days ahead, the weeks ahead. Excellent. It was a great seminar. I want to delve right into some of the comments that were made there, and I want to get you to open up about your argument. Mm -hmm. So in literature and political economy, there are two perspectives on the state. Mm -hmm. There's contract theory and predatory theory. Can you sum up what each each of them is about? And which do you think better explains what we actually observe around the world? Sure. The, The contract theory emphasizes that individuals essentially contract with the government in order to uh, exchange some of their liberties so that the government will provide public goods, things like contract enforcement, better regulation of financial markets, and in general, things that are going to improve uh, social welfare. And that's the defining feature of of a public good is that it's something that is going to benefit everybody. And in general, we assume that those things are, are, are better provided by markets. And so the contract theory, when it comes down to it, is, this, is a perspective that the state exists in order to do what is in society's best interest. The contrasting predatory theory takes it a different view of the state. It emphasizes that the state is not necessarily motivated by doing what's in society's best interest. And so it, it starts off, instead of thinking about a voluntary social contract. It thinks about the government as predator and citizens as prey. And so what the government is going to be more interested in typically is to acquire more revenue, to acquire more things that that it wants. And these activities of the state are not necessarily going to be in the interest of society. So these are two very different perspectives. And while there's a vast literature on the state, we think it's useful to divide the, the literature up into these two perspectives, and we end up siding more with the predatory theory. Why is that? I think if you look at today's wealthy countries, you can make a case that much of what the government does is does benefit society. But if you look at most of the developing world, and in particular fragile states, the notion that the government does what's in society's best interest is questionable. And so we think that the predatory theory is, is much more useful to describe state behavior in most of the world, with the exception of perhaps the world's richest countries. At the same time, we think those, those wealthy countries, the governments in those states, still have a tendency toward predation. And so What separates those states from the rest of the world tend to be things like political constraints, limits on government. And so we think that the predatory theory is actually a useful model for for understanding 
most state behavior, not just the wealthy states, but we want to add additional factors like political institutions to understand why some potentially predatory states choose to be developmental in some contexts. What do you think is missing from our available analytical frameworks? How can we improve the theory of state predation? I think the predatory theory is a useful framework for understanding the behavior of states, but existing versions of the predatory theory tend to focus on characteristics of assets that might explain the behavior of the state. And so some of those perspectives look at things like the appropriability and mobility of assets and argue that the reason why the state might expand its its influence over things is because it can appropriate immobile assets. And we think that that aspect of the predatory theory is useful. It helps us understand why the state oftentimes asserts control over land and natural resources, but has a more challenging uh, time asserting its control over things like human capital, which is more mobile and challenging to appropriate. But at the same time, the predatory theory benefits um, from the inclusion of what we think are, are four additional factors. And so one of those factors is the extent to which the state enjoys a monopoly on coercion. And the reason why that's important is because when the government uh, has an imperfect monopoly, it's going to think more in the short term rather than in the long term. And, and any government that is confronted with that instability, we would expect to have stronger incentives to, um, to engage in predatory behavior. A second factor, um, which I kind of alluded to earlier, uh, is the structure of political institutions. So we certainly want to to consider how political institutions might explain the, the 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 incentives for the government to engage in predatory behavior. Now, what do we mean by political institutions? We we mean things like uh, separation of powers, political decentralization, or uh, polycentrism. Uh, and those sorts of uh, uh, aspects of political institutions. A third factor uh, is foreign intervention in a country. And with foreign intervention, we emphasize things like foreign aid, foreign military presence, and then you could also have direct uh, foreign influence through, through colonialism. And so our idea is that when you have foreign intervention in, in a country, it can soften up the, the budget constraint that's facing the government, which, which means that a predatory state is going to have more ability to engage in predation because it might be supported by uh, uh, other um, foreign powers. You know, and so, you know, so, so we look at all, each of those factors. And then the fourth factor we look at is self-governance, which we argue uh, provides, uh, in many instances, limits on the predatory state. And so our, our theoretical argument can really be boiled down to we expect state predation, but we also want to look at the state's monopoly on coercion, political institutions, foreign intervention, and also think about uh, self-governance. Your latest paper is about Afghanistan, a country that has seen little in the way of political or, or economic development despite trillions of dollars of investment from the international community. Why do you think state building has failed there? I think 
the state building, the state building effort, uh, in a general sense was extremely ambitious and the design of the Afghan state from the outset has been, uh, it's aspired to centralization. And I think when you try to create uh, a highly centralized state uh, in an environment where the state really has, you know, very few uh, resources, very little ability to collect revenue, that's going to create some challenges. But beyond that ambitious scope, in terms of our framework, what we're looking at is uh, a government that's created with with designs for a lot of capacity, but there aren't that there aren't too many political constraints on on the the Afghan state today, and so the state remains highly centralized, which from our perspective is is a challenge because that means where the state does assert some of its authority, oftentimes the Afghan state is going to be um, perceived as predatory, and so in some of our other work we look. At, at, at property rights institutions in Afghanistan. And so when thinking about things like property rights, you know, Afghanistan is a, is a country where, where most people don't have legal title. They believe they own land, but they don't have government uh, titles to that land. Now, the argument is usually made that if you give people legal title, it's going to improve their uh, their incentives to invest in their land. It can provide the, the government with an opportunity to um, to tax people's land. And so it's viewed as, as being important for development. But in Afghanistan, when you gave people the opportunity to register their land with the state, a lot of times people declined to do so because people in general don't trust the state. There's a lot of corruption. And part of that reflects the lack of, of political constraints. And so that's going to undermine um, prospects for effective state building. But you also have in Afghanistan today massive foreign intervention that isn't necessarily designed well. And and so if you have a lot of aid, uh, some aid projects are going to work well, but other aid projects are simply going to result in corruption. And so we can't necessarily... Uh, Look at foreign aid is always doing good, despite you know a lot of aid workers having good intentions, and so that's a challenge. And then you have the U.S. military, which can be a, a source for stability, but it can also, uh, over time, uh, create its own sources of corruption because there's going to be massive amounts of money going in to support the military, which can create opportunities for corruption and patronage. And so if we look at Afghanistan today and the state-building process after 2001, what you see is that the Afghan state, despite having elections, still looks a lot like it's looked throughout its history. And so what we see is a continuity of of the predatory state for reasons that we think can be understood in terms of the theoretical theoretical framework that we have in, in in this paper and in, in some of the other uh, projects that we're working on in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Afghanistan seems to have been defined by foreign intervention throughout, throughout its history. Mm-hmm. Can you talk, talk a little bit more about how that particular element has affected the Afghan state? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's useful, I think, to think of Afghanistan as having different patrons, international patrons. And so in the 19th century, 
the the, the British were a major patron, also a, a major source of uh, of international invention, intervention. And so, with the the Anglo-Afghan Wars uh, from 1839 to 1842 and 1878 to 1880, um, those conflicts had had a big impact on on domestic uh, Afghan politics. Uh, after the Second Anglo-Afghan War, Abdur Rahman, who earned a reputation as the Iron Amir in Afghanistan for his uh, brutal tactics for dealing with his opposition, part of his rationale for trying to centralize state power was his belief that uh, state uh, weakness invited British intervention. But after the British intervened, after Abdur Rahman came to power, uh, what he what he did uh, was secure a subsidy from the British, which allowed him to participate in the international arms trade, which basically made him stronger vis-a-vis his population. And so in our framework, Abdul Rahman essentially became a stronger predator vis-a-vis the prey, in part because of British British subsidies. Um, and also his justification for why he assumed more power, what gave him to an extent that he had legitimacy, it might have reflected British intervention in Afghan affairs. Um, you know, and so that's on the British side. Uh, the 19th century, that's what you see. But you also, if you go forward into the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the Soviets became the patron. Um, and with, with Soviet intervention in Afghanistan, that created a whole additional host of problems. The Mujahideen uh, insurgency was a response to the perception that Afghanistan's Communist Party was pursuing reforms that were out of step with the demands of Afghan society, Afghan culture, Afghan Afghan uh, institutions. You know, and so beyond that, after 2001, the new patron is, the, the Americans are the new patron. And so in Afghanistan, if you think about the history of patrons and, and those 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 harmful consequences in terms of foreign intervention, there's a continuity there. The the patron has changed, but the the the, the negative effects of foreign intervention have not. That's been a recurrent theme, and that kind of feeds together with with domestic institutions to help us understand why uh, you have really a continuity of of state behavior that undermines welfare for society rather than enhancing it. How does the Afghan state actually prey uh, on its citizens in this uh, situation? So Mm -hmm. as a result of foreign aid, it doesn't actually collect a lot of tax revenue. So Mm -hmm. it would seem like there's not much to prey upon. Mm -hmm. What does predation actually look like in this case? Yeah, in the the Afghan context, historically, uh, as I mentioned, Abdur Rahman would, would prey on the population. He waged what he viewed as... Uh, civil wars uh, uh, within his country, um, and so he he subjugated tribal opposition. I mean, it's it's actually more accurate to say he like he bludgeoned them into submission, you know. And so, if we're looking to tie together foreign foreign interve- involvement and 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 outcomes, uh, historically, you can do that. I think pretty in a pretty straightforward way um, during Soviet times. You know, the Afghan Communist Party, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, uh, was was supported by the Soviet Union. And what they would typically do in terms of predation is is go into 
communities and and try to uh, hurt or disappear or, or kill uh, customary and and tribal leaders in order to assert assert control. You know, and so um, you know, so you've had had government activities. Predation has been in a you know, oftentimes in a direct sense an effort to really uh, harm harm the local population. Uh, and then today, after 2001, the, the, the government is not engaged in that type of, of predatory uh, behavior, but you have other types of predation, things like land grabbing. So, you know, when the government wants to, has announces plans to, uh, to recognize people's property rights, a lot of times what occurs is that um, that process of formalization ends up benefiting those who have close ties uh, to the government. And so predation in Afghanistan is not about taxing people too much. A lot of times we might think of the predatory state as you increase tax rates. Abdul Rahman taxed everything that could be taxed, so he tried to do that. And uh, today you don't have as much of a problem with uh really high taxes, but predation takes other forms, land grabbing, mm-hmm. uh, corruption, you know, that's where, that's where you see, um, that type of, uh, uh, challenge with, mm-hmm. with predation in the current context. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the importance of self-governance as mm-hmm. a way of constraining state predation. Mm-hmm. What role does self-governance play in Afghanistan? Has customary law been important in counteracting state predation? Yes, so the structure, Afghanistan's structure of customary governance divides authority between, between village representatives, uh, uh, customary uh, deliberative councils, and also religious, uh, religious authorities. And, and so that, that division of authority leads to, in, in many instances, effective governance locally. Now, Customary governance cannot provide public goods on a grand scale, but it can provide a lot of public goods locally. It's where you go to resolve disputes. Um, if people have a dispute, they generally don't want to go to the courts to try to resolve it or to the government because they, it's a longer, costlier process. And so usually people can um, can govern their, their affairs locally. And so in looking at where you have quality governance in Afghanistan – it usually doesn't come through formal channels. A lot of times it comes through customary channels. And, um, and, and so one aspect of that is also going to be uh, customary law. And so you have customary, uh, customary institutions that can be applied in different cases to resolve disputes. But what you also have is a customary system of governance, these kind of um, deliberative processes and procedures that provide a flexible way to address new challenges as they arise. And so it's not just the application of law that you see uh, through these councils. They also are a system of, of governance. And so in the Afghan context, if we're thinking about these, these customary systems of governance, what they do is they provide people with an opportunity to coordinate on, on the meaning of their their rights vis-a-vis the state on what the limits of the government are. And, and they also provide uh, Afghans with an opportunity to, when the state tries to, uh, to expropriate uh, from them, when it tries to, 
to enter into their communities, it can be a source of, of, of resistance and against the state. Now, the challenge with customary governance is that they can also be overwhelmed by, by the government and they can be overwhelmed by insurgents. And so a community, a village that, that's a small village isn't necessarily going to be able to defend itself against the Taliban. But what customary governance can do is it can develop good relationships with the lower levels of, of government in Afghanistan so that they can work together in order to defend against, say, predation by the Taliban. But you have to first make sure that the, the Afghan government is also constrained. Otherwise, the village can be between a rock and a hard place, stuck between the Taliban on one hand, and on the other hand, you could have a government that you can't necessarily trust. So a key to getting those, um, you know, the villages to work with the state uh, to provide a bulwark of defense against the state, uh, you have to have that, and then you can then have those those customary councils then uh, work to improve security as well. Where does the Taliban actually fit into this framework? Is it a form of self-governance itself, and can self-governing entities be toxic and predatory themselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a great. Uh, th- this issue came up yesterday in our talk. Uh, uh, in in the talk, uh, Mark Pennington raised uh, uh, this issue, and, and it's it's a good one. And and I think the Taliban today, because they're not part of the state, would represent an alternative form of self governance. And so, what's really important uh, to think about when 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 considering a context like Afghanistan is that um, you're going to have a large uh, uh, set of actors that fall into the category of self-governing organizations, you know, and so uh, you could have customary organizations, you could have tribal organizations, you can have Taliban, uh, and Taliban uh, organizations, um, you know, might be a little bit closer to tribal organizations because there's closer tribal ties maybe with uh, uh, the Taliban. Um but you also have different types of self-organization based on different types of economic activities. So you're going to have different self-governance with amongst farmers compared to nomadic uh, uh, groups in Afghanistan. And so the gist of all of this is that self-governance is not necessarily good in all instances. Self-governance can also be predatory. Um, and this comes up a lot in the literature on on the Af- on, on African chiefs, where a lot of the literature suggests that chiefs can be as predatory as any other um, uh, as any other group in society, uh, even though they have their basis of of authority is is tradition. And in Afghanistan, what we find is that customary councils tend to be constrained. That's why we think they work well, why they're a basis for mm-hmm. state building. In other contexts, self-governance doesn't work well. And indeed, there's a large literature that suggests traditional orders are, in general, uh, bad for development, uh, to kind of simplify things. But that's the general idea. Mm-hmm. And indeed, there's a large, you know, uh, there's a large, uh, I was going to say literature, but there's a lot of policy in Afghanistan that is based on the presumption that the, the informal orders, even customary governance, which we generally are sympathetic to, which we think work well, 
that's very critical of those organizations. Um, you know, and so, you know, in thinking about self-governance, uh, our, our, our perception is that, um, and our evidence would suggest that, it, that these things, they do work, the customary governance does work well in Afghanistan, and that the Taliban self-governing organizations, in some situations they, are, they do provide public goods, they can resolve disputes, but we don't think that they're a long-run foundation for uh, political or economic development because the Taliban are still fundamentally unconstrained. So the Taliban are more like engage in violence but provide some public goods because you can't engage in violence all the time. That's just the kind of rational thing to do if you're an insurgency group. You see this all the time. You don't 100% of the time engage in violence because you would lose legitimacy. So we just view the Taliban as self-governing. In general, they're not a framework for development. Um, in general, they're very damaging to the population. And when they provide public goods, sometimes... That's only a small part of what they do. Most mm -hmm. of what they do is, is predation. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that it's important for a state to have a monopoly on coercion in order to have this long-run view to, mm -hmm. to actually create a wealthy society that they can actually then generate um, their own income from. Mm -hmm. So it looks like in Afghanistan there is a centralized government, but it doesn't have much of a monopoly of coercion on coercion mm -hmm. outside of Kabul. Mm -hmm. Is there really a state in Afghanistan at all? Or are we just talking about warring groups that are competing for power? Mm -hmm. How much does your framework actually apply to a situation like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in the Afghan context, the state has a weak monopoly uh, on, on violence. But in some areas, in well, it, you have these traditional strongholds of Kabul and Kandahar, uh, where you're going to have more of a state presence. You know, and, and where the state doesn't have a lot of authority, you do have this dynamic of different groups competing uh, um, for authority. And in those areas, what you find is that uh, oftentimes you're not going to have provision of public goods by, by the government or necessarily by the Taliban. And in those areas, what you get is kind of anarchy prevails. Now, what happens in areas of Afghanistan where anarchy prevails? Well, anarchy does not necessarily translate into d disorder. You know, anarchy is just a, a situation where you don't have a state to tell everybody what to do. And so in those areas of Afghanistan, you have governance. It just isn't from the state, and if the Taliban leaves communities alone, they generally do uh, pretty well. Now, where the state does try to assert its authority, uh, the framework uh, that we're using helps us understand state behavior. Why, where the state does have some authority, um, the state in general has not been able to, uh, to govern effectively. And so while we're sympathetic to the idea that Afghanistan is stateless, the fact is that Afghanistan, it does have a state. It's just a very imperfect state. Um, and in areas where you don't have a lot of state presence, then we really want to think carefully about self-governance. And so even in those areas, you might have statelessness, but it's important to not equate statelessness with, with disorder. You know, anarchy is, is something where you can have... Uh, a good deal of order despite an absence of the state. Mm -hmm. 
I want to reiterate the four variables you mentioned that can help reduce state predation. So a strong monopoly on coercion, robust political institutions with checks and balances, uh, the lack of foreign intervention, the presence of self-governing institutions. Mm -hmm. Do you think that in principle, if Afghanistan were to implement all of these, if they built a strong federal government and maintained local customary traditions without undermining village uh, leadership, and if they took away foreign assistance, do you think that that would just actually help Afghanistan reverse course uh, in its developmental trajectory? I think that would be a useful plan for thinking about how to organize your your, your investment in state building. Um, whether or not the international community could actually accomplish that uh, is obviously a huge challenge. Whether or not Afghan policymakers would want to do that is also a huge challenge. And so it, it's not just a matter of, you know, the international community could suggest um, a plan that is more uh, along those lines. But why would Afghan policymakers who, you know, if power is currently centralized under the Afghan constitution, why would they just give up authority to local levels? Why would they support um, political decentralization? And that's really one of the challenges with, um, with formal polycentrism. It's that polycentrism is always a political choice. And you have to get in most contexts that are centralized, you have to have some kind of a coalition or a pact between those with, who have power and the status quo about devolving or giving up some of that power. Um, you know, and so in Afghanistan, that, that kind of domestic institutional challenge is developing uh, support for these types of changes. And then there's also just getting into the details of, of the Afghan state bureaucracy it's it's easy to say like you know put throw aid into afghanistan but reforming bureaucratic institutions is always challenging and afghan bureaucratic institutions are pretty persistent the institutions that existed in the past continue to exist uh they've been modified but there, there there's a, there's a lot of persistence there and those types of challenges, getting into the institutional details, are, I think, tougher for state builders. You can, you can create a constitution with all sorts of positive rights, and Afghanistan's constitution has all sorts of positive rights. But in terms of day-to-day administrative practice, that, that's not part of the constitution, you know, and, and, and that's really what we should be focusing on. Because really, what determines whether or not Afghans view the state as non-predatory is whether or not the bureaucracy is different from what it's been in the past. The bureaucracy has to be something that delivers on public goods rather than basically creates uh, headaches for people. Um, and so I think what we have here uh, in the research we're doing on Afghanistan is a framework, but the challenge is that a lot of, a lot of uh, policymakers, a lot of scholars uh, believe that Essentially, in what we think is like a contract perspective on the state, mm. the government provides public goods, and if you give it more capacity, it'll do good for society. And we think it's useful to think more about the state as predatory. And indeed, we think that's how most Afghans have experienced the state historically has been a predatory state. And so when the state builders come in with this view of the state as 
providing public goods, people aren't necessarily going to uh, perceive it as such. And so we think that state building uh, would benefit from a reorientation of its of its perspective, and, mm-hmm. and part of that begins with adopting a more uh, predatory uh, mm-hmm. notion of the state, kind of thinking about the state from more of a uh, essentially like a public choice perspective mm-hmm. where you look at the state as as you know consisting of rational individuals who mm-hmm. don't necessarily have the information mm-hmm. to do what's in society's interest nor the incentives mm-hmm. the institutional incentives to do so mm-hmm. and so you really want to create a set of institutions so that the government can acquire information mm-hmm. to make better choices but also create uh better institutions so that they have the incentives if they have that good information to act on it uh, in ways that are in society's best interest. Mm-hmm. I think you're hitting on a really important point. To some degree, we know all of the variables that are correlated with good governance, mm-hmm. particularly on the example of the developed world. But at the same time, looking at much of the developing world, we're stuck in mm-hmm. transition and there's actually no incentive for political actors to make the necessary steps and moves to um, actually relinquish their own power. Mm-hmm. Barry Weingast was in here a couple of weeks ago, and he said something interesting. He said, well, we've managed in the developed world to develop without really understanding why. And it looks like it's a bit of a conundrum for us mm-hmm. in terms of studying development do you think that we have a decent theory of how we actually develop as uh, societies? Mm-hmm. Do you think that um, there's anything that we can parse out of what we know about economic development in terms of an externally generalizable theory about political and, and economic transition? Or is economic development oftentimes really just mere historical accident? Can Afghanistan learn from other examples? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a it, it's a fundamentally important question. Now, if we just think, if we step back and say, well, what do we know about what drives development? Like, we know that institutions probably are the driving force behind economic growth and development. If you have good institutions, um, you're going to have better outcomes. And I think what um, what Barry Weingast is, is getting at is that. The origins of those institutions, who has the good institutions, that's something we really just don't know that much about. And even if we, and, and so if we look at who developed institutions, how long it took, we're talking oftentimes centuries, right? I mean, you, you look at English economic history, right? How, when did property rights emerge in England? You know, you go back to the Magna Carta, you know, you take, you look at the, um, you know, the glorious revolution. Those are the formal institutional changes that we associated with more credible property rights. But the actual creation of private property rights were by people going out into new lands and enclosing it and working the land over a period of centuries. And so England has good property rights in part, developed effective property rights because they emerged spontaneously. The United States, the historical accident is that the U.S. happened to acquire uh, all of this land, which they could then 
reallocate for, for private use. And so the U.S. has good property institutions, but that also took the 19th century. There was a lot of conflict over property rights. And so the countries that ended up with the good institutions, a lot of it, uh, uh, it took place over a very long time. And so now what we're trying to do is trying to create better institutions uh, in places like Afghanistan. So you want to take private property rights and create them in Afghanistan through a formal legal process. Well, our point is that you don't need to do that because you already have customary institutions that allocate property rights. So just leave that alone for now. Focus on other things. And so we think that the best you can do in Afghanistan is to recognize the point that Weingast is making, which is that in most contexts, you're going to find institutions that tend to work. So you leave those alone. Or try to strengthen them. And just don't try to be too ambitious because usually the efforts to create institutions from a top-down process or to, to transport them from one context to the next, that usually doesn't work too well. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, um, so I think what we really need to do when it comes to thinking about state building, institutional change, is to appreciate that much of what works emerged through a spontaneous process. And so in that sense, it goes back to an idea common in Austrian economics, spontaneous order, order that is a result of uh, purposive behavior is going to oftentimes result in institutions that work pretty well. And if we look at today's wealthy countries, most of the institutions that we associate with that wealth that we think causes that economic development, most of them emerge through a spontaneous process. Um, you know, and so if we appreciate that, that, idea, that those ideas about spontaneous order, it might lead to a more limited approach to uh, state building, one where we spend more time trying to figure out what's happening locally rather than to try to go in and create new institutions. Where does that leave us from a policy perspective, at least in the developed world? So essentially, is the logic here to just do nothing in terms of economic development for um, for other countries? So you stop foreign aid, you stop interfering, obviously you remove any military interventions. Um, is there nothing that developed countries can do in terms of policy? I think... One of the things that you can do is you can work with communities to better try to understand what their needs are. And and that, I think, is going to be a key to understanding to um, what you should be spending your resources on. So there has to be more of an effort. <clears throat> Rather than going into the state building process with answers, you want to go talk to people to figure out um, what your goals and your priorities are. You know, in, in essence... It's not. We're, we're not saying state building uh, that there should be no intervention. That you should just leave countries to their uh, their own devices. Though, given we've spent trillions in Afghanistan and things do not seem to be, you know, going very well, maybe it would have made sense to not spend all all those resources. But we're not going to go that far and argue that you shouldn't try state building. It's just that state building should be much more limited in hmm. in scope and the investments in state building really should uh, 
be based on on uh, uh, much more uh, interaction, much more integration of communities in the process. Mm-hmm. So bringing communities back into state mm-hmm. building. And the reason why we think that that doesn't happen is because the international community tends to want to work with pre-existing power structures. Mm-hmm. Most of those power structures are at the national level. And so you kind of get uh, a persistence of what we've seen seen in the past in a lot of these contexts and that's the government is detached from society mm-hmm. so in essence what you want to do is bring bring society back into the state building process mm-hmm. you know you'll still need a state yeah. you can't have no rich country today gets by through self-governance alone you need a state mm-hmm. but those states have to be based very strongly in uh, a society and that society has to be the kind of foundation for limits on the government mm-hmm. and so it would be more of a bottom up to summarize our approach it would be bottom up state building that sounds uh, easier said than done obviously <laughs> i wanted to actually touch on this one lurking variable particularly when you want to bring society into the equation mm-hmm. so you don't mention the role of culture mm-hmm. in afghanistan's governance problems you think it plays any role in the country's inability to develop a commercial society Our thoughts on, on culture in Afghanistan is that Afghan culture is actually very conducive to both democracy and to commercial society. The problem in Afghanistan for us is not culture, it's the state. The, the state and formal political institutions are what's holding Afghans back, not culture. And so, you know, for us, if you look at the structure of village governance in Afghanistan, It provides a forum for people to participate in in decision-making. And we view that as being, uh, in a lot of ways, um, a, a, a good foundation for, for democracy. So we don't view democracy as something that can't transplant, cannot transplant to Afghanistan because of culture. We think Afghan culture is actually conducive towards, uh, towards democracy. And also, too... I think Afghan culture is, uh, to an extent, individualistic in the sense that, for me, individualism is a, a belief that you can get by, not by yourself, but with your community. You don't need the state. And I think, like in the United States, traditionally, going back to Tocqueville, individualism in America meant we can do things without the government. And I think that actually characterizes Afghanistan. So just as the American culture is one of individualism, where you're going to have Uh, I think, strong support for democratic institutions. I think Afghan culture is individualistic. People think they can get by without the state. And to me, that is actually a very strong foundation for democracy. Mm-hmm. The problem is that Afghan, Afghan, Afghan rulers have, in general, been predatory. And so Afghans might not trust the state, but I think they, 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 they respect and believe in democracy. So I... I We're going to integrate culture into our argument in part uh, uh, because of the comments that, that, that you and, uh, mm-hmm. and Leah raised yesterday uh, at the discussion. Um, but also because we think if you take culture seriously in the Afghan case, it's going to, um, it's going to be something that would, would be more supportive of democracy, more supportive of private property than you might expect. And well, everything we found in Afghanistan is that you have local, local, uh, local democracy, uh, and you have 
local respect for private property and communal property. Um, but you don't get as much respect for these types of things when you come from the state. And so the culture, we think, would actually work in support of our, our approach to state building. You just need to unlock its potential somehow. Right, yeah. yeah. You need to, yeah, exactly. You need to unlock the, mm-hmm. allow those cultural characteristics of Afghanistan that could be a foundation for a more effective state. You, you need to provide a space for that, mm-hmm. that culture to thrive, to make it become a foundation for, the, for governance, mm-hmm. not, not to view it as an obstacle. Mm-hmm. You have a new project on the horizon that involves a comparison of governance institutions in the U.S., China, and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. What are your hunches about what you're going to find in that comparison? Yeah, so this is a really exciting project because uh, all of us working on this this next project uh, are, are mainly experts on um, one of those countries that we're focusing on. So m- my first book, The Political Economy of the American Frontier, was about the emergence of, of informal uh, property institutions in the U.S. and how those, those informal uh, property institutions influence the development of, of legal property rights. Uh, my co-author on that, that project, one of my co-authors, Jennifer Murtazashvili, is, uh, has much more expertise than I do uh, on Afghanistan. She is actually uh, the Afghan expert. I'm more of the, uh, uh, the, the, the I'm the Americanist uh, uh, of, our, of, of our team. Um, and then Maynard Tsai, uh, our colleague at the University of Connecticut, she's also working with us on this project, and she's an expert uh, primarily on, on property rights in, in China. And so each of us, we all, and we all went to graduate school together. And so back when we were PhD students, we would, we would chat about how we were all interested in property rights and governance, and maybe one day we could do uh, a project together. And so now that that project that we're working on is uh, uh, looking at uh, the question of property protecting states. And so the framework for that, that book project is it starts off with looking at uh, property rights. And we said there are three general uh, situations with property rights. You can have property protection provided as a public good. You can have property protection provided selectively to some who can essentially pay for it while others are left out, or you can have uh, anarchic property, which is you don't have the state providing any property rights, but you might still get self-governance. And so with that project, uh, what what we use uh, our framework to to understand um, what sort of property uh, regime you get depends also on some of the factors we've been talking about today. So things like a monopoly on coercion, effective political institutions, uh, and even things like foreign intervention could, could come into play. Um, and so we want to view uh, features of the state as the factors explaining what kind of property regime you get. And, and in terms of the, um, the empirical studies, we look at the United States as an example where property protection in general is provided as a public good. So this is the case where you kind of, you want to get to this point. Um, Afghanistan is the situation where you get anarchy when it comes to property. Um, The state in general cannot provide legal property protection. You have anarchy, which doesn't mean disorder, 
you still have self-governance, but the legal property system is anarchic in the sense that state legal institutions are pretty incoherent. And China is the important case. That's the intermediate case because in China, we characterize China as having a, a selective enforcement property regime, which in the Chinese case, uh, you get this dynamic where there's a lot of respect for property rights for people who are uh, associated with business. And farmers in China, the, the entire system of financing local government is based on allowing local governments to expropriate land from Chinese farmers, and you pay them a bureaucratically determined price for that land. Um, and they don't have a lot of say over the terms of those deals. And it's certainly they're certainly paid a lot less than the value of that land in the open market. And so we characterize as China... Uh, a selective enforcement system whereby the rights of, say, farmers are much less protected than the rights of uh, business people. Mm -hmm. you know? And so what, we, what we're finding in that project is that if we want to understand the kind of foundations for uh, effective private property rights, our key claim in that, in that, uh, that article and, and that book project is that... Um, the state uh, uh, that satisfies the characteristics, uh, these different types of political features that we outline, is going to be determining whether or not you get the good property system, the intermediate property system, or the anarchic property system. Mm -hmm. And so the more general point is that to understand property institutions, you need a theory of the political origins of property. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of contrasts with the economic arguments about uh, property rights, that property rights come about because it's efficient to create them. And it also contrasts with cultural arguments, which emphasize not the political foundations of property, but the cultural foundations. Mm -hmm. Now, we acknowledge that the cultural explanations, they explain some aspects of, of what we're looking at. Um, but in looking at those three cases, we're really going to kind of focus on the, the political origins of, of property security so that's what we're that's what we're looking at with that so that's kind of like the 10 years ago when we were chit-chatting about this in uh in uh as we we're finishing up our phds uh we finally got around to the truly comparative work and, and so that's kind of the 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 evolution of these ideas that we've been uh, working on for a while fantastic hopefully you'll be able to tell us a little bit more about uh, the key mechanisms that mm -hmm. help us have excellent governance institutions around the world. Mm -hmm. It's been a pleasure talking with you today, Ilya. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Irene. It's been a wonderful visit, and I, I, I really enjoyed my time here at, at King's College and here in the Department of Political Economy. Thanks so much. To all our listeners, you can find more podcasts, blogs, and live events on the cutting-edge debates and governance by following us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is CSGSKCL. We look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast.